And we are live. Chris Varakis, what's going on, brother? What's up, Parker? Um, before we get started, I want to give a couple of quick shout-outs. Number one, Casey Buchanan. Uh, he texts me. He's uh, come up to me and, and given me a lot of compliments on the podcast. Thank you very much. Uh, Shout-out to my first guest and former roommate, Lee Gook, has officially taken his hoe ass back into kickboxing. Uh, hopefully, he's feeling his fucking age and, and learned that time away from the gym is just no es bueno. <clears throat> also, uh, if you caught the podcast last week, uh, with Scott Cushman, the striking coach from Rufus Sport. We were talking about a couple of fighters, uh, Kristen Rodriguez and Brian Batista. Big congratulations to them. Um, they bo- Both of them won their fights uh, at CFFC. Uh, Christian had a third-round stoppage via TKO, and uh, Brian Batista in the second round locked in a RNC, or a rear-naked choke. And a big shout-out to Greg Huber from Santino's, who was entertaining my girlfriend the other night. Uh, telling some old stories about me. If you get a chance to go over to Santino's, it's a great spot to uh, go have a date night. They have amazing pizza. They have amazing food over there. So you stop in there, say uh, say what's up to Greg. Tom Parker sent you. All right. Uh, this week's guest, Chris Varakis. Uh, goddamn, dude, you might have been the most prepared guest I'll probably ever get on this show. You sent me at least uh, 20 pages of notes um, of books that you were currently reading shows you have done and i was going over the notes today just kind of doing a, a quick review of everything and the first one that sticks out was frankie bones and that was back in 2008 and i was like i, I didn't know other people were were familiar with frankie that well <clears throat> yeah um let's see that show was that a place on 13th oh dude oh, pull up to the mic bro <laughs> pull up pull up pull up here you can move that around there you go first time podcaster here sitting across from joe rogan's biggest <laughs> biggest competitor all right there you go that's better frankie bones yeah um let's see that was one of the first shows i did uh under the guidance of christopher grant if anyone remembers him former, of the uh, crisp fame yep yep and outlawed productions um that was at liquor suites if anyone Maybe anybody remembers this venue on 13th in Oklahoma. Oh, shit. It was a crazy space. Um, it was like three rooms, like full-blown nightclub. It was 18 plus, maybe all ages. Mm-hmm. There was a lot of people there. Yeah. Um, yeah. So how exactly did you get into doing shows? I mean, at 2000, in 2008, you only had to be, you had to, you had to be like a teenager at that 2008, point. 2008? No, I just graduated college, so I was 21. Okay. So how did you get into booking like music right away? So in college, I'd started DJing. Um, There's this group at UWM called the Electronic Music, Electronic Music, uh, EMC, Electronic Music Coalition, mm-hmm. I believe. Yes, yeah, Chris Grant ran it. Um, and he was kind of my first biggest mentor, I guess, mm-hmm. um, and kind of w- guided me on the booking process and like, Got my foot in the door with a couple venues. Um, that was the first, I guess, entry point to learning learning this industry from the inside out. Okay. So, and then from there, did you start DJing or were you DJing already? Or So, I think it kind of was like hand in hand. Um, if you want to get gigs, the best way to get them is to book, book shows yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, so, I was just starting to DJ and just starting to promote simultaneously so like what was like so i can remember my first records like uh big shout to the guys over at scratch pad rick jules and his guys i told (laughs) them like the the interest of music that i had 
and they basically were like, you're going to want this, you're going to want this. These are like your staples. Like sure. one of them they gave me was Daft Punk. And I was like, oh, shit. When was this? Dude, this was 97, 98. And I was like, oh, shit. I was like, all right, cool. Damn. Yeah. So like they kicked me off in the right direction. Like I was playing like I was playing like what I would consider like later would be like clubhouse stuff. Like I was playing stuff like I was playing like the abducted series that they had out um, Daft Punk. And they were giving me like like real kind of disco records. Like there was that like kind of Madison Avenue kind of vibe where it was like that real bouncy club shit. Yeah, I think um, the air of the record is quite interesting because for people who grew up DJing on records, like you had limited money to get limited records for a new gig, limited spots to get them, a few select record stores. And if you were lucky, one of those record stores was owned by somebody who's a prolific track selector mm-hmm. who had really good forward-thinking taste in music. And I don't know, you're a broke college kid. You come into a record store with $20. That's going to get you two new tracks for the night. Yeah. So you're going to dig for fucking, for until you find those two good tracks. If you're lucky, the flip side, the B side will also have good Something tracks. Something decent, you yeah. Know? So I think it, it that kind of curates your brain to like think is like less is more quality over quantity. Yeah. Like for me, it was one of those things that, like they came up to me and they were like, I shouldn't say they came up to me. They came at me like this. They're like, take these records. They're like, they should all kind of blend together. You're going to have to figure out the, the tempo and, and which one goes back and forth with one another. And they're like, come back in a couple of months and they go play them for us. And you know, if you're doing well, we'll sell you more records. If not, we're going to tell you to go back to your parents' basement and keep playing. <laughs> and that's what I did the first two times I went there. And they're like, Nope, you're not there yet. And I was like, but it's so close. They're like, you're not there did yet. They have, um, decks set up where you could actually listen yeah to so like there. you had the the decks that were there they had the the mixer and stuff like that so if you wanted to play around with the record and see how it blended with another one you could sure. and then they had the one in the center of the store where like there would always be someone kind of like spinning records here yeah. and there and then like they'd put you on and they're like all right go ahead and it's nerve-wracking because there's, there's only two or three people in the fucking room but you're like this is my this is my best shit and, and you like, don't know the yeah, and tracks you, maybe you're playing stuff out off the shelf, right? Well, no, it's not necessarily that. Like, so when they sold me my records, they were like, "Hey, go home, play these, and then come back, and then come back, and show us what you can do with show that. us what you can do, and Pressure's then on. and then once you do that, we'll figure out. And there's no YouTube to figure it out. There's no tutorials. Actually, I think I I got like a DVD or VHS tutorial, like a beat matching tutorial, to try to learn how to beat match. I had a kid um, down the block from me that that kind of had an idea of it, but he was he was on, like he was listening to like Acid House and shit like that, and like that was his vibe. Yeah, I think you your original question was what kind of music? Yeah, was I into originally? So like I grew up on uh, like the Minnesota Midwest like backpacker hip hop stuff. That's kind of what like got me really interested in DJing, mm-hmm. like graph writers, b boys, DJs type of thing. Um, atmosphere, the whole Rhymesayers crew and stuff like that. DJ Abilities was a huge influence. He lives in Milwaukee now. Mm-hmm. Shout out DJ Abilities. Um, picked up turntables, started buying a lot of hip hop, instrumental stuff. Then uh, started getting interested in electronic dance music, mainly drum and bass. Interesting, interesting. Like liquid jump up, <clears throat> jump up, uh, melodic, tasteful sort of drum and bass. So I have a pretty big collection of hip-hop and drum and bass and jungle stuff and those two genres tend to complement each other well because drum and bass is about 
on average like double the tempo yeah most hip-hop hip-hop ranges more than any other genre but um, drum and bass usually is like around double yeah so you can usually beat match the two genres and flip flip between like double up on the tempo and then flip back which kind of like creates an interesting dynamic with the dance floor well you can do like the the halftime so like if exactly, a record was yeah. like 180 beats per minute and another one's 90 indie, yeah so or you another would... one's 100 you could just speed one up and slow it down there's a pretty big um gap of uh halftime double up sort of situations you can you can flow through uh, we might be talking kind of technical for for everyone else. So I, I guess if if you're at home and, and you're not a DJ and you're not able to understand this, so BPM is is beats per minute. So the best way to describe uh, like your normal hip hop song, like the first one that always comes to mind for 90 BPM is in the club 50 Cent. I don't know why that sticks I out. I actually have a drum and bass remix of that track that is absolutely dope. So the way this works is if you take what is a drum and bass track, which is 180 beats per minute, you cut that beat in half. That half is 90. So it's just basic math that you're doing in your head. So a track that is 90 beats per minute should, the acapella track should match up with the instrumental track, which is 180. No, not even the acapella, like both tracks, the full version of each track. Yeah, either one that you want to do. But you can blend them on yeah. top of each other, and it sounds really dope, especially when one breaks and it's all of a sudden. And a lot of music gets produced this way now, like where, where the breakdown will be a halftime. And it, I mean, especially on a on a dance floor, like that creates an interesting dynamic when it all of a sudden breaks into like half the tempo. Mm -hmm. Like people's bodies naturally react. The whole yeah. energy in the room naturally like cuts in half almost in a weird way. There's a lot of EDM that that uses that now where it like it does that halftime. I've always tried to avoid like huge breakdowns like that unless it's like unless you're doing like kind of a trance set where it's like you have good lighting, you have sure. a great atmosphere to be able to do that. But in a club setting for me, it's like I always want this like I want high energy all the time. The club dynamic is particularly interesting and I think the most difficult of any situation like it's not that difficult to play a main stage festival crowd where like everyone's there to rage to like the same genre of music but when you put a bunch of like disparate people from different backgrounds with different tastes of music with different levels of intoxication yeah. at that time like and you have to kind of figure out how to get all these people to not only dance but also return to the bar throughout the night and buy drinks and then come back to the dance floor um so like all of that can kind of be done by navigating your way through BPM ranges and genres and old school and new school. And like, there's a, there's a perfect balance that can be had if you've. Yeah. It's, you know, we've had that conversation before. I mean, outside of the podcast from back in the day, um, for those of you who don't know, I, I used to work for Chris. So I DJed at site. I DJed at Oak. Uh, in fact, on a regular basis now, I see like on Time Hopper, I'll see like, oh, I was playing at, at Oak five years ago. And those, I mean, honestly, those were some of the best parties I ever played. But um, where was I going with this? Um, we were saying, shit, I lost my chain of thought you, there. You didn't work for me. I would say more or less you worked, 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 worked with, with, with me. You. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, you were a DJ. Yeah. Um, oh, I remember I was, I was going with this. So those parties were always insane. I remember at one point, you, you had a couple different promoters that were there, and I was just like, you know what? I'm like, we're just going to have some fucking fun tonight. Like, in the middle of the night, I was doing, like, EDM. I was doing hip-hop. I was going back and forth. And then as a what the fuck, I just wanted to see what the if people would actually go to the bar, if they would stay on the floor. I played Fall Out Boy in the middle of the night. And, I and it worked. Like, it, it got everyone. Yeah. 
It wow, like it no. took the it took the party from like a ten and shot it up to a fifteen. I think that's super important. Throwing in the unexpected yeah. gem or something that like you you don't expect DJs. Anyone can play the, the top forty charts all night. Like and most DJs do, and they pull from the same record pools. And they like I've never used a record pool in my in my life. I still won't because you get you end up sounding like every other DJ. It, like I look for the quality over quantity sort of thing again. Mm-hmm. Um, but yeah, the fallout boy, I, I could see how that works. So where do you put like, so when you were DJing back in the day, so what do you do then? So I've always, when I was um, digging for records, like one of my first sort of in, um, introductions to new tracks was always like uh, mixtapes, like fabric live. Do you mm-hmm. remember those, those mixtape series? I'm not familiar with fabric them. is like a legendary nightclub in London but they would record um, some of the biggest DJ names in the world. And then they would put, put out the mix on CD. You could buy them at like exclusive companies. Like sometimes Best Buy even sold them. Oh, so for me, I always did Ministry of Sound. Like that was like, sure, that's, that's another got... good example. Yeah. And then I don't know, there's maybe one or two like incredibly awesome tunes in a mixtape by your favorite artist. I would go and fucking find those tracks, even if I had to order them on wax from London or something. And, um, what was the store? Niche Records, I think, in uh, downtown Milwaukee. Justin Screendoor. He had an incredible ear for music across all genres. He always seemed to have like the track I was looking for mm-hmm. from one of these mixtapes. But I kind of do the same thing now. Like I listen to mixtapes by DJs who I think are like forward-thinking track selectors, and borrow their ideas more or less, and then put my own spin on them, and then try to find those tracks wherever I find them. But <laughs> There's there's some unique ways you can get tunes, um, if whether buying them a B port or uh, using like Google dorking methods to find them on free servers on um, Google basically. Yeah. Like Zippy Share is like a free file sharing service. If you type like um, site colon zippyshare.com and like pretty much any track, you'll get a download link for it almost immediately. Oh, nice. I, I actually and the, might steal that. The site <coughs> colon piece. There's no space after that. But that that um, uh, search piece is a Google dork that basically says only only scan for um, this for results contain from Zippy Share basically. So so you're searching within Zippy Share to find a certain track then, or are you doing a, a like a a wide Google search? You go like? to Google, yeah, but you tell Google only look for results indexed within the. Zippy oh, Share okay, domain. I see what you're saying now. And, okay. Um, you could do it with like site colon reddit for i do that one a lot too like looking for like reviews and real world like feedback on an item i want to buy or something mm-hmm. um if you if you often search like for that item you'll get a bunch of like review sites that are probably getting paid by those companies to write glorious reviews about the product or whatever mm-hmm. reddit's usually a good place to go oh, i love reddit and i saw i saw a post by you on reddit the other day crush it on reddit don't you uh I, you know what here's the thing i i'm a total meme collector so like i like it'll be one of those like i like i just like sitting in the tub i'll go through reddit and i just like i <laughs> scan for memes in the bathtub just getting sitting That's in the awesome, bathtub dude. just fucking scanning for memes all day dude do you um, have a giant folder of memes dude i you know what here's the thing if you follow me on instagram like there's at least 10 of them that i post a day of like dumb shit that i find there was one today where uh, i saw it was like oh what the hell was it i might actually have to pull this up now it was uh, O'Brien from um, Star Trek Enterprise. Actually, you know what? I think I can actually put this up on the screen. 
Oh, dude, this is hilarious. You're going to love this shit. Here, I'll pull this up. I'll, I'll screen it over here. I'm hoping I just don't get flagged for... Because uh, there's music on some of this. I'm going to... So, like, when Bitcoin hit 60K... I saw that one. So, yeah. <laughs> and then, uh, what was the other one? And these are all just, like... Anyone, uh, so, did anyone else ever go through the phase as a kid where you were generally... You're generally concerned about the Bermuda, Bermuda Triangle. Six-year-old me was like, bro, why are we not solving this problem? So, like, yeah, this is just the dumb shit that I come up with on a regular basis. Do you save all these things to, like, a folder in, in iCloud or something? Nah, dude. They just... Dude, I got Holy Diver playing on that one. <laughs> she okay? She probably blew her knee out. <laughs> so, yeah, that's all the stuff that I Where find. Where do you pull all this stuff from? Dude, that's just on Reddit on a regular basis, man. That's all I pull. Yeah, I saw your uh, post. You shared like a video article from a local news site about the fines that people are bars are getting. I had the displeasure of Dude. meeting Tim Stein and his wife yesterday. They came into Taylor's, um, and I mean, here's the thing, man. It, it, it's we're getting reported for whatever fucking reason. Dude, there's so many. I, Chris. I don't even want to go. Do, I don't even want to go down this uh, this rabbit hole because it gets political so fast, and like people get outraged on the internet over this shit. But it's like the amount of outrage on Reddit over this article. Like some dude, some dude posted like they should just let them all open back up, and this dude got like downvoted like a hundred times. Exactly. And like people started like just yelling at this guy, like screaming through their keyboard at this dude. And I'm. Yeah, and and here's the thing. My my philosophy is this: is that. You know, I'm fine with wearing a mask if it puts other people at ease, if it's part of the rules. If I need to sit down in a bar, I will adhere to these rules. But my personal philosophy, let people be people. You know, we I, do live in a f country um, where we have basic rules and rights granted to us, like freedom and. Uh, but liberty. but Chris, we're we're in the age of cancel culture. You know, yeah, well, you can't I, you can't I, think for yourself, man. Cancel culture. People who get canceled are are very interesting to me and probably would be good friends with me have when we meet i just feel like the people who end up getting canceled are, are people who speak their mind and don't really give a flying fuck what what the internet mob which is probably a very small minority of people yelling really loud just like a the small dog usually barks louder than the big one seems to be that way with the cancel culture phenomenon it, i mean it, you're not that far off man it's you know i get that there's there's a level of how do I put this? People want to see change, but change doesn't happen overnight. So what they typically do is they push for immediate change. And instead of someone learning gradually as they move, like as they move through life, like, okay, letting them form the opinion that, okay, this is something that's new. This is something I have to get used to. This is something I have to be accustomed to. People are trying to force them. And I, I don't think that's the right way of going about it. I, I think everyone should learn gradually because it isn't something that happens overnight. Change doesn't happen overnight. So give people the chance to learn. Like, for example, um, when when I was growing up, like gay relationships wasn't like a, a big thing that was that was outspoken. That you know the the term coming out of the closet, so on and so sure. forth. A lot of people live their lives in the closet. Now over time, I was able to understand that you know, a, as a young child, I didn't get it. As I've slowly grown up and I've grown I've grown around. My friends who are gay, family members that are gay, I've understood that this is more widely accepted. Where it's not, I, mean, I shouldn't say accepted, but it's more uh, prevalent in our culture than I had ever imagined. So 
over time, I was able to adjust to it. But I think the fact that you're pushing people to use certain uh, certain verbiage where it comes to trans people or where it comes to um, like when it comes to even wearing a mask, being seated, so on and so forth, all these rules, just give people time and, and, and give them a good explanation. I can I also just inherently cannot prescribe to any sort of go along, get along, group think bullshit like yeah. the, the crowd, the crowd and like identity sort of politics, just not something I've ever been able to do. Identity sort of groupings of anything. Um, I guess I've always kind of disliked authority, though, and sort of the the general trend of whatever's happening at the given moment most of the time anything that po anything that gains like uh a super high level of popularity and acceptance probably wrong i think it was oscar wilde that said that like everything popular is wrong if you think about it like it kind of has to in its own right like appeal to so many people that it ends up getting dumbed down pop music sort of um you can think of examples in pretty much every aspect of life that fit this category yeah and I mean, here's the thing. I get where everyone's coming from. And I imagine the people on Twitter and all that stuff, everything that they're doing, you know, they're they're thinking it's come from a, a good spot. But give people time, man. And it, shit doesn't happen overnight. Are you familiar with the concept of anti-fragile? Anti-fragile? No. Yeah. Like something that is fragile breaks easily. Something that is robust doesn't want to break. Something that is anti-fragile, like becomes stronger the more it's tested. Um, so like a person who's like um, exposed to little uh, bits of dust or whatever becomes more resilient to um, a cold or something like this. This is why a vaccine usually has a small dose of the medicine in it. Oh, uh, a small, small dose of the virus. Here's a, here's a better example with like technology. Google like used to get taken off the internet for days at a time, all the time back in the day. Um, just was hackers ddos the website happened regularly but the more it was attacked the stronger it became um i think that is something to say there saying. with like with the uh, whole concept of like gradually exposing people to new ideas letting them be open to them and kind of become more resilient as a whole over time yeah you give people like, you give people information you give them knowledge and they learn over time and I, I think that's the best way, man. Knowledge is literally fucking power. Um, you give people time to learn about different cultures, different people, and they'll build from there. Um, we totally got off topic. We totally dove down there. But no, I like what you're saying there with the, the anti-fragile. I dig that, man. I really do. Um, I wanted to circle back to uh, Oak and Site 1A. Sure. Um, so you built your early career as a DJ, as, as a booking or booking manager for, for groups and, and different venues. Like I looked at this list, man, you worked with everyone. You worked with the rave, uh, you worked with liquor suites. Uh, let's see what else you, uh, three, you worked with why not three most the rave apartment, seven twenty star bar. Holy shit, dude. I forgot. I used to play there. Hyde bar, uh, Turner hall ballroom, the mirror mark back in 2012. God damn dude. Dicks. I mean, the list goes on and on. Yeah, everything it, from the Alliant Energy Center, which was the first ever arena show in Wisconsin, electronic dance music-based arena show, to the Riverside Theater, to small club rooms, to... I think that's important in the 
promoter and event side of the situation because you have to develop a re early relationships with artists and then build them um, up through the market, <laughs> which is what, kind of why I like the Riverside Theater Group has such a awesome dynamic and is largely considered one of the greatest um, event promoters and venue spaces in the whole country by a lot of um, big promoters with Live Nation and such. But they can build an artist from Turner Hall into the Paps Theater, which is 1,500 people, into the Riverside Theater, which is 2,500 people, do three nights of or seven nights of Dave Chappelle in the Riverside if needed, mm -hmm. um, or go and partner with the Pfizer Forum to take it to the final level. Mm -hmm. um, so yeah, I, th I think it's important that uh, promoters work with all venues because no artist is going to fit <coughs> excuse me fit everywhere like if one venue is not going to work for all artists is what i mean to say you had some heavy hitters that were or, i'm sorry before i even get into that so what made you go into working for yourself then with with oak and site 1a then let's see working for myself well for yeah so you were bringing in like you have a list of a who's who of artists that came through Sight and Oak before I think people ever knew really about them. I think Cascade, Morgan Page were some huge names already, but you had Sunburn. Um, I'm just trying to name these off the top of my head right now. Um, you had a ton of different artists that came through. 700 plus artists over the last 10 years, something like that. Dude, this list is huge. Kill the Noise, Dylan Francis, Alec Metric. This is a list of artists and remix artists of, of shit Feel of theirs if I played. That if you like. Uh, I, I think I have to. I'm, I'm, I'm probably going to Tidy, which is that poster right there uh, who I opened up for. Diesel Boy. Uh, yeah, I booked Damien. One. Dirty South. Uh, the list goes on and on. Party Favor. Party Favor, I don't even think before Party Favor even had a, a single yet. Um, oh, you had a Lenium? How the fuck did I miss that one? Dude, you have a like seriously. This is a DJ's list of of music that I played that you just booked at these venues. So, talk to me about the direction that you wanted to go with getting all these artists and building your brand between Oak and between Site One A. So let's see, the back to like two thousand and eight stuff with I'm just starting out DJing and like starting to get club gigs, I guess, at bar gigs and such. Um, and also wanting to promote and curate a branded night around them. So I'm starting to like build some events as well. Um, it's not always advantageous to DJ your own event. You know, sometimes you want to host it or book other DJs or start swapping DJ gigs with someone in Chicago for a gig out there. Mm -hmm. There's all sorts of ways you can go about it. Um, and then uh, trying to expand my venue relationships throughout Milwaukee and uh, open doors in as many venues as possible. Um, so let's see, the question was, how did I end up transitioning to owner of, of the nightclub situation? Yeah. So let's see, 2010, um, there's this company React Presents. I'm sure many people are familiar. They started Spring Awakening, Somerset, North Coast. They own the mid in Chicago, Prism. Um, I got a message on Facebook from Lucas King, who's the owner. Um, he was wanting to book a show at Turner Hall, which is a venue that I'd just done an event in month prior i think mm -hmm. with the dirty disco kids like a local uh, madison actually madison based trio dj trio it was like I think it was called the yo mk dance party like the yo mtv raps logo yeah did like 300 people um but lucas needed like a guy on the ground to promote this event he was doing 
he didn't tell me the artist we ended up connecting it turns out it was Datsik. um obviously i agreed to co-promoting the show with him so we kind of partnered on the show um we sold it out thousand tickets uh that was in 2010 i believe mm-hmm. 2011 maybe um and from there i was like i was eager to continue building that relationship with him and he was eager to build his brand out of chicago and into other markets milwaukee detroit and some other st louis and stuff around the midwest um, so we started a basically a partnership a couple months later where i started booking shows leveraging the react presents um rolodex and i became like a talent buyer of sorts with react as a partner on the on everything in the wisconsin market so like it was a mutually beneficial relationship that started opening doors to artist connections that i would have never been able to do on my own um including like the cascade let's see was that that was just after i bought into oak i think but i'd started booking a couple big shows around the city a track at 720 um a few shows at oak uh, which opened the door to talks with oak to buy out an existing partner that they had mm-hmm. um, so that was kind of the first foot in the door as a owner of a nightclub here so was that offered to you or was that like something that you pursued? Um, actually, back up a little bit further. Um, I think it was in early 2013. Passion Pit was playing a show at the Riverside Theater. Mm-hmm. They do DJ sets as well. So and I had a relationship with the Riverside Theater group. So I asked them if, if I could do an after party um, with a DJ set. Wait till the show is sold out there and then announce it. They agreed. So I think I got Passion Pit for like $1,500, which is insane. We did the after party at Library Club. Um, you remember Library Club? Yeah, actually, Bowl? something just came up the other day where it was like Dude. ten years ago. I was playing there, and I was like, "Holy shit!" I'm like, "I forgot I used to play here too." And, and Passion Pit Man was hilarious. They played like Turn Up, Hood Rich, like crunk music. Like they got fucking in. They went in on this shit. Hell's yeah. Um, but I was I was kind of like actively. That was like my next move was in the back of my mind. I was like looking for an opportunity to buy a new venue or open one myself. Um, so I started a conversation with the owner of library club and we met a few times, talked about it. Um, we actually petitioned the city for an 18 plus license in that venue, got turned down. Uh, the guys at Oak, I was DJing there every, I think you kind of filled my Saturday slot when I bought Oak prior to, prior to that, I was DJing like every Saturday at Oak. I think you might be right, because I think I think I ended up becoming like I did like every other Saturday there, because it was, I think I was a, this is right around the time I came back from Vegas, yeah, because I think we had the conversation before I left, and I'd asked you about the React, because every all all the posters in there was all React, 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 and I was looking at the lineup, I was like, dude, you got like seven lines coming through, you have this, that, and the other, sure, and I was like, fuck, dude. and I remember we got into a conversation about like electric daisy chain like out in vegas and a electric bunch of daisy carnival carnival that's what it was edc yeah um Rotella. what did i say chain carnival sorry <laughs> um but yeah we we got into this huge conversation about like west coast music and, and festivals and shit like that and then when i came back from vegas like i was working in chicago and i was coming back to milwaukee on the weekends to dj and somehow i don't remember how that ended up starting but we ended up doing shows at oak together and I remember that now 
Yeah, dude, it's crazy. Like that was only like you know seven or eight years ago. Well, fuck. Yeah. yeah. So I was. I'm sorry. I was getting nostalgic no, there for a awesome. moment. <laughs> I was uh, actively looking for an opportunity to buy into a nightclub or open one myself. Um, at first, with the React dudes, because mm-hmm. they had already owned the mid. They own, they own Concord Music Hall now. Um, well, the React brands since separated. Different. That's a whole other story. But at the time, and the Oak guys, I was booking some big artists for Oak. Um, Sean Pliss and Jared Seamers, awesome dudes. Uh, I had a great working relationship with them. So I was like booking some big headliners on occasion. Uh, I think Morgan Page was the first big one that I booked there. Mm-hmm. And it absolutely crushed. It was like a Thursday night that they weren't open otherwise. So it was like, and it was like a record bar ring, like t- tickets, the show made money at the door, um, which is a rare situation with a big DJ like that um, in a small room like Oak. So these guys, these guys knew that I had some things to offer as an owner and they had a partner that kind of wanted out. Mm-hmm. Then they heard about me like exploring this option with React at Library Club and they kind of jumped on the opportunity to open that discussion, which led to me buying out Vic was his name. You know, that's an amazing space that you guys had there because it's, you know, 350, 400 people. 250 they... actually. Is actually, it? <laughs> 170 was the legal cap at Oak. And uh, we got some tickets like in the ball- ballpark of like $80,000 of combined tickets. Uh, and like I fought those tickets, got every single one of them dropped. And wait, 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 time out. What were, they, what were they trying to hit you with? Capacity violation. And after you exceed your um, capacity require- your limitation, mm-hmm. you get like X, X um, fine per person over that. And then it jumps like 10 grand and then 25 grand or something. So I had cops and like undercover cop cars, like across the street with binoculars, clicking every person leaving the club at the end of the night. They got me like, I don't know, around 250 people on the third time. And it like, it ended up being like combined, like 70,000 or $80,000 in tickets, Jesus, which we took to court um, and argued that we should have our capacity upped to 250. Uh, presented all the necessary like fire code stuff and ended up getting all the tickets dropped and the cap upped. Beautiful. So pretty cool story, yeah. Beautiful. But I, I kind of argued that like I wasn't able to book some of these DJs because of that 70 person difference. Because mm-hmm. 70 tickets in a 200 or so cap room in Milwaukee, Wisconsin is a huge deal. That could be the difference in, I don't know, a cascade coming to Milwaukee or just skipping Milwaukee yeah. and going somewhere else. So I kind of argued that angle as well with the city that like the room is plenty big for 250, plenty big for 350 probably. Yeah, it's it's comfortable. Especially the, the this is an interesting conversation too in the nightlife world because they treat um, these capacity limitations as like hard limitations as they would in like the Riverside Theater. But they're very different dynamics because at the Riverside Theater, you book, uh, you buy a ticket to go see Dave Chappelle. You show up at the beginning and you leave at the end. In the nightlife world, like if your cap is 250 and you sell 250 tickets, at no point in that night do you probably have 250 people in the venue. Correct. So it's like, what's the uh, threshold and like how? What's the variation? Like how how much can you go over safely? Mm-hmm. So it was an interesting conversation that I think still needs to be addressed with the city. Yeah, I mean, 
I think you're a thousand percent right with that. It's uh, you know, no one really shows up in this city until like eleven, eleven thirty. You know, there's few people that are there's a hands full of people that are there at nine o'clock when they first open and stuff like that. You know, usually it's uh it's a couple stopping in after this had dinner somewhere and having a couple of drinks saying hi to a, a bartender or two that they yeah, know. Yeah, exactly. And then that's it. And then they're usually gone by 10, 1030. Um, that early crowd is always like the real fun one to play with when you're DJing though. Um, when you have like 20, 30 people just kind of bopping around, you're playing old school, playing some new school stuff, just kind of seeing what hits, seeing if you can get these people to stick around for Those a little bit longer. the times in the night to play, I think. They're the best, man. It's, it's always my time to, to a- try new shit. There's a great article on, I uh, can't remember the website, but it's called The Esoteric Art of the Opening DJ. Mm-hmm. If you Google that article title, it's an amazing article every DJ should read. Basically, it argues that that's the most important slot in the night. The opening so, slot. The opening slot, yeah. Well, it sets your tone for the rest of the night, and it's one of those that it's a slow... For me, it was always a slow buildup. There's, there's a couple different styles that are out there as far as DJing goes. There are guys that just crash and play like for me i was always trying to slowly build something where it was like i didn't want to shift from first gear to fifth gear i wanted to get slowly into first gear slowly into second gear i have an awesome analogy that jason samonic gave me once when i was djing at star bar um we had a friday friday night weekly there and he was showing up late this friday and i was still a new dj and i was i was like banging it out and it was like 11 o'clock and nobody was in there. And I was like, balls to the wall. Like, dude, Samag walks up to me and he was absolutely furious. He shows up at like 11. He was seriously pissed off. And he walks up to me and he, he says something like, you can't just take a chick on a date and start face fucking right away. <laughs> and then he literally grabbed his gear and left. Oh, never shit. Back. And I'll never freaking forget this. He's like, you need to have a conversation. You need to you need to build the night and the energy like. You need to understand this or this night's done between us. <laughs> so, yeah, I, th- I think that was a good uh, metaphor I've told time and time again. It is, man. You got to you gotta hit the romance, man. You just can't be fucking dry sliding. <laughs> <laughs> oh, man. Um, so, as far as your DJ career goes, like, where did you all play before you got into Oak then? So, you were doing most. Oh, man. I you was were doing Oak. freaking <sighs> crisp. Most Mikey's 723 star bar. Pause right there for a second. Um, Steve and YB and I got into this conversation about like great rooms to play. Number one, back in the day, uh, Sighton and Oak were some of my favorite, like one of my favorite rooms to play because it's one of those that you could play stuff that you couldn't play anywhere else and it worked. Why do you think that is? I think you had such a diverse crowd. I think you had a crowd that was there that was down for whatever. Like, you could hit them with Frank Sinatra in the middle of the night. Do you night. think that's the byproduct of the DJs playing diverse music from the beginning or that the diverse crowd allowing the DJs to play diverse music? I think it was a perfect balance of both because it was, you could go in there one night, you could see a local DJ play, and the next night you could go in there and you could see, like, Tidy play, like, an amazing fucking EDM set. So it was one of those that it wasn't it wasn't branded to one genre or one crowd. I don't it think was anything should be and that was that was one of the key building blocks of the brand is like I, I don't want to go anywhere where everyone looks the same. 
I don't care if there's a hundred supermodels and I'm the only guy, like I need a wingman and some other dudes to like, <laughs> to help with the energy. Like I want to go somewhere where it's like a melting pot of creativity and artists and weirdos and drag queens and supermodels and bros and freaking homies, like all of the above put everybody together in a room and see what kind of interesting things happen. Well, the most interesting shit usually happens when it happens. You have exactly. the most craziest conversation. Do you learn about different cultures? We have too much of a, like you were talking about this when we were off air that you hadn't been on Facebook in forever. And a lot of that has to do with the fact that like, in my opinion, everyone's just real tribal, man. Everyone's got their left or right view. If you're center, you you're know why this is. And I think I've, this is, I don't know how obvious this is to most people, but the problem with Facebook is when you like something on Facebook, you like, a, I don't know, a political tweet by Donald Trump or some shit. What does Facebook do? They show you more of Donald Trump. That is not how the human brain should advance. The human situation advances by being exposed to alternative points of view, um, dispassionately discussing them. Uh, like I heard this good metaphor the other day. It's like um, the political, it was about the political situation. Basically, it's like you have two people who grew up in different countries driving on different sides of the road. And the idea was that you should, um, they now live in the same country and everyone should be able to drive on the same side of the road that they grew up in. So instead of having a lot of interesting conversations, you get a bunch of auto accidents and nothing really ever happens. But I dig that the, the political like Facebook, like makes its money on advertising. They do that by figuring out what you like and then giving you more of what you like. So rather than being exposed to alternative points of view um, and trying to disprove your own confirmation biases, you just continue building into an echo chamber of sorts and everyone starts screaming at each other. And <laughs> you get a bunch of people like rolling up their sleeves and punching each other in the face and like nothing ever advances. And I don't want to be a part of an environment like that. No, I hear you. It used to be a day and age where you know, a cop could live next to a teacher and they could have opposing views on what worked and what didn't work. And those two people would talk and they were cool with being neighbors where we flash forward to 20 years later now, you know, they're suing each other to get each other to move. And and that's not the way you can go about life. Yes. I a thousand percent agree with you that the best way to solidify your view of the world it's is to have other people... Try to prove it wrong. I have other people chip away at it. Exactly. Yeah. The first thing, and I often ask I'm customers. Over. I often Boom. ask customers. This is when I first started like thinking about this. When when I opened site, I started asking customers that I didn't know, like, what do you hate about this place? Like, I already kind of, I already think I know what I, what we're doing right here. Like, I need to know what I'm doing wrong, what I'm missing. That's how you you should think about like almost anything. Like, the second you start believing something to be true. Like this is how science advances. You need to look for disconfirmation in your idea. If you fail to knock it down, you can build it back. You can add to it. If you can knock it down, it's proven uh, there's holes in the argument and you need to analyze that and figure out why and go back and iterate and expand on it. People are locked in like echo chambers of confirmation bias though when they, and they don't even realize that this is happening on Facebook because that's how their algorithms work. Same with Google. Yeah, I mean, it's. I try to. I try to keep it off as best as possible. the The stuff that I do these days is I just talk about this podcast and any other shit that I have going on. But other than that, like, I try not to look at that shit it's just because it's double edged sword. Almost like you almost need it for publicity, but don't want it for privacy. And like, how? Where's the balance? 
where do you draw the line and the line and Facebook makes that line very difficult to find by constantly blurring it and and giving you more things to I don't know stimulate your yeah no no I I, I pick up exactly what, what you're saying there it's it's tough man it really is you know you, you want the the promotion of the stuff that you're doing oh, go ahead you can drink while you're on here I don't give a uh, shit dude I was like, I kept seeing you reach for it. I was like, dude, you can drink. It's all good, man. But um, no, I, I I see where your point of view is. I think one of my most peaceful times was during the lockdown was when I I had always said if I wasn't a DJ anymore, I would delete Facebook. And I deleted Facebook for, I deleted it from my phone, deactivated it for three months. And I had people texting me and they're like, Parker, did you block me on Facebook? I'm like, <laughs> no, nah, man, I just deleted that shit. I didn't want anything to do with de- it. You just deactivated it. Yeah, I just deactivated See, it. See, I haven't gone months. on Facebook. I may have gone on Facebook a handful of times in the past year. Right when I sold site, I was like, I mean, I primarily only used Facebook as a means to like build the the dance music and music scene and nightlife scene here. Like when I sold site and stepped away from that, I didn't really find Facebook very useful to my life anymore. So I just stopped going logging in. I deleted the app. I don't have the app on my phone. I'll um, in fact, I logged into Facebook on my computer the other day, and it was an absolute nightmare. Like huh. on in a browser. Oh. I don't know if that's because I use Firefox and like have it all hardened for security and privacy and shit. But dude, it would not load. Like everything was impossible to do. I was just I just closed it. Yeah, I run a so on the production computer right behind us. I have a Firefox, and then I run a VPN on it as well. Sure. What kind of v, what VPN? Uh, that I want to. It's not Express. It's Nord. That's Nord. the one. Views Nord, good company. I dig them. Uh, nobody really knows who the. They're always like shadowy companies. Nobody really knows who the owners are. Some people have suspected that like the CIA might own a bunch of these VPN companies and stuff. I I think Nord's a reputable brand yeah. though. They had a they had a pretty solid deal that they emailed me where it was like three, you know, three years year, yeah. three years for like a hundred bucks and I was like done. When you run out, check out Malvad. Malvad. Malvad, yeah, they're like a Swedish Swedish based or Switzerland based company. And Firefox just actually Firefox just announced a VPN built into the browser. I was gonna say I'm like Nord's built into uh, Mozilla, so like you can do just do the add on and then like the problem all- with that though is that your traffic's only protected when you're inside of a browser. So like anything. Any app you use or something is not routed through that VPN. Yeah, so I usually just I run both. So like when I'm inside oh, the browser, I'll I'll just log in, and then I just keep the the Nord running at all. But time. what I was gonna say about the Firefox situation is the VPN that they announced is they use they're using Malvad basically. They just don't say that and oh okay. Wait, are they using that in the private browsing or are they just no? Like you can buy a VPN, a Mozilla Firefox VPN service now. Oh okay. Um, but it it's Malvad. That's all it is. Dope. Oh, fuck. We got off topic again. Oh, where were we? I don't don't like straight tracks of like pre-configured fucking life paths and shorts. We can go wherever we want. No, for me, like I just keep an outline just to kind of keep myself on task of of where I want to begin and kind of where I want to end. You know, we were talking about um, before when I deleted Facebook that, you know, we were in the middle of lockdown. How was the quarantine lockdown time for you? For me. I found it really refreshing. Uh, I was playing six, seven nights a week and taking what I thought was going to be two weeks off was great. And then it turned out to be a couple of months. And I, I just, I felt recharged when I came out of it where I was ready to do anything. And now that it was kind of like touch and go where it was like, I went back to DJing for a little bit and then it got pulled out oh, again. That, with, yeah. And I, I'm just like, I haven't really done 
anything musically and that's kind of like at the beginning of the year i was like fuck it i'm like i'm not djing i'm like i've always wanted to do a podcast i always wanted to get back in radio and i was like boom here yeah, we go i agree with you man there's always kind of a silver lining in in any situation i think there have been many silver linings in in the covid situation um kind of pull back and like i i, I was i've been kind of focusing on writing reading learning a lot of disparate sort of areas anyways so it kind of put me in a zone for a solid six to eight months or whatever um now i kind of i would like wouldn't mind going back out to a nightclub on on occasion i feel you i I, you know we said it on the first podcast uh shout to cassidy Liederbach. i want to pay 14 dollars for a beer again at a music festival (laughs) oh i saw somebody (laughs) somebody posted something like that the other day was that you that posted yeah dude that's a good one like I'm, I miss, I miss live music so much. Like one of the, like my last, my last couple of weeks right before the lockdown was I went out to Vegas and, uh, I ended up going out there and I saw a bunch of shows, partied my ass off. I, I saw two chains, uh, play at, that's dope. I saw him once in, uh, LA, I think he was doing Dre's, uh, beach club, uh, big shout out to my man, big smooth got me in there. And I was like, I was I had the night off and I was just like, hey, I was like, let's go grab some dinner before you got to work. And he goes, yo, we got two chains by us. And I was like, dude, can you get me on a guest list? He's like, fuck yeah, dude. I showed up, saw two chains and then fucking partied my ass off afterwards. I think I walked back to my hotel from Dre's, which the Cromwell is kind of like on the south side of the strip. Where was I saying? I think dude, I, was saying I have the- never been to Vegas. What the fuck, dude? I know. I have a confession to make and you should probably invite me the next time you go i heard vegas is open again right it's kind of open like it's it's weird like if you want to if you want to go i would give it another couple of months although i don't think we can go go to excess where like a lot of the like dylan francis plays there so I, I, I we can go to some of the underground clubs well fremont for me is like my spot like i love hanging out like in the local club scene um i meant to tell this story when steven hurst was supposed to be on i i kind of teased my brother about the story did I tell you about how I got a lifetime ban from the win? No, but that's awesome. <laughs> you got like canceled at the win. I got canceled at the win. So uh, Stephen Hurst was performing with Kid from Kid and Play. Okay. And they were doing a, a comedy show together um, down in the Fremont area. I forgot what the name of the hotel was, but they were doing a comedy show. And I saw that Stephen was going to be, he was in Vegas at the exact same time I was right around this time last year. So I was like, all right, man. I was like, you know, let's link up. He's like, oh, Parker, come to the show. He's an English dude. Come to the show. And we hang out. And he was like, um, he's like, let's go party afterwards. Like me and this guy, he's a Manchester United fan. He's a boxing fan. So like him and I hit it off like fucking Kool-Aid and sugar, man. Like we hang out. We start talking boxing. We start talking soccer. And we have mushrooms. And I was like, dude, let's take these mushrooms. And let's go fucking roam. No, no, let's go roam around Fremont. So it was still pretty early. So we're staring at the lights. We're drinking beers. We're hanging out. We're having a great time. And uh, he's like, he's like, Paca. He's like, I gotta get going. He's like, my my girlfriend's a lawyer. He's like, I gotta be up early for these shows. Blah blah blah. I was like, all right, man. So I just kind of take a look at my phone to see what was going on. And I was like, fuck it. I was like, Dylan Francis is playing at Excess right now. I was like, if I if I hop a Uber. I can get there and I can catch like 90 minutes of his show. I was like, cool, fuck it. So I take off and I get to excess or I get to the win and I forget that I have these mushrooms on me still. No, dude. So, and they're not, they're not like mushroom mushrooms. They're crushed up into capsules. So like, I just have them in a little aspirin bottle and, um, 
so I get to the door and they're like, we got to search you. And I was like, what are you guys search me for? I'm like, where the fuck am I going to keep a weapon? And they're like, no, 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 we got to see what you have on you. And I was like, all right, cool, whatever. So I'm emptying my pockets out and I forget that I had the aspirin bottle on me. And they're like, what's this? And I, it's just the little tiny travel one. I was like, my supplements? Because <laughs> they kind of look like kind of look like a multivitamin. Sure. And he's like, no, what is this really? And I was like, they're multivitamins. He goes, <laughs> Well, and take some. And I was like, <laughs> I was already tripping my balls off. And I was like, mm-mm. <laughs> they probably resold those. Um, no, they tossed them out in front of me. And they threatened to uh, go grab the cops that were sitting on the street to Jesus, go have me really? arrested. Yeah. That's and they're like, just so you know, you are banned. They're like, you are never allowed to come back. Although now with COVID, I think I'm, if I write them a letter and email and be like, I got banned right did before you, this. Did, did you give them an ID? How, do you, how would they remember? They the pull, So they give you your, you have to give them your ID when you pull up. It was like a $75 cover charge. So I gave them my credit card. I gave them my ID and they started searching me. And they're like, what is this actually? I was like, well, you know, I'll level with you. They're mushrooms. I was like, I ate a few, but I'm like, hey, I'm still drinking. So uh, let's party. Let's let's catch some Dylan Francis. And they're like, okay, we're just going to check with our, our security guy really quick. And I thought for sure. I was like, oh, this dude's cool. Like, he's just going to toss my shrooms or, or he's just going to keep them, whatever. No, they told me I was banned for life. And they threatened to call the cops. That's I mean, fine. There's plenty of other clubs. And they're like, you're ejected from the property. They is the win that cool? Those like mega clubs in Vegas don't seem that interesting to me. The, I mean, here's the thing. The The cool part about them is, is that you can go on any given night. You can see like Calvin Harris. You can see Cascade. You can see Crank It. You can see whoever on any given night. But it's such a... It's a fast food version of what you uh, did. It's, it's the everything popular is, is wrong in a way, sort of. Man. No, no, no. I, I want you to understand what I just said there. It's a fast food version of. Of what you did at Oak and Sight. Oh, wow. Interesting. Oh, yeah. So it, here, picture it, picture it as they want volume, not quality. Does that make sense? Yeah. I mean, I think Excess did 70 some million dollars in single year. I don't know how if they publicly disclose those numbers or how they gather those stats, but something like close to a hundred million dollars in a year is insane for a nightclub. I mean, it's do. it's great, but once you've done it once, you're like, okay. But I, I mean, honestly, I'd give it all up to catch a good artist that I want to see in a small venue, in a like, proper venue, yeah, with a proper sound system that's intimate, dark, well curated, whatever the. I, I understand for sure. Like, seriously, some of the things that stick out in my mind was, you know, the, the first time that you had Morgan Page on that Thursday. Um, it Oak. was, yeah, it was, oh, I'm drawing a blank on her name now. Lives out in Denver, real estate. Oh, she's going to kick my ass for forgetting her name. Um, it was her, me, YB, and I was just. Oh, yeah, you guys opened for that show? No. No, I didn't open for YB it. I was just there. for, I think it was Salt and Ed Shepard shortly after, but okay. But yeah, so I just, I came in. And I think I asked Sean, I was like, hey, can I just order a bottle and just sit at the bar? And he was like, yeah, dude. He's like, you can do whatever you want. I was like, cool. I was like, it's just me and like whoever the hell else that might show up. So like I just ordered a bottle and I was just like, here, I was like, have a shot. I was like, have a drink. I don't give a fuck. Kate Vollmer. That's who I was hanging out with. Um, And she ended up just hanging out with me. And like we were literally from here to that light. That's how close we were. Just watching the show. Fucking sipping kettle one and sodas, dude. All the homies did the. The homies, like the homie homies, would would often do that at sold out. Like when tables were sold out, 
they would much rather chill at the bar and I would too. Yeah. And it's, it's great because you know, all of a sudden you turn around, whoever's bartending, you're like, dude, let's do a shot. Let's do a shot. Hey, throw one to the, throw one to the DJ. Is he drinking? Oh, he's drinking. Cool. Get him one for us too. Yeah. I think the, the whole mega club, like phenomenon will burst eventually just like any bubble sort of bursts. The EDM bubble definitely burst at some point and I don't know. Well, it, it was can... insanely overhyped. Like these, the 2011, like when Skrillex dropped scary, um, scary monsters and spe- sprite spirits. Jesus, I'm been a minute. Holy, yeah. <laughs> um, like there was definitely a bubble brewing, and nightclubs took advantage of that situation. But I think that will burst and. Well, I think it's more so in the the balls more yes. in the artist court than anything now, where it's not so much as the venue that makes the artist the artist that makes the venue like a like an artist an artist with a good name can go anywhere and play whether it's a music festival whether it's a small venue whether it's a huge venue as long as there's their name behind it and people know their music people are always willing to to shell out good music and that kind of goes back to what i was saying before is right before lockdown i was out in vegas i came back i saw Chappelle, and then the seven-day run of Chappelle is that I, I saw one of the nights, so it was me and Dan Gonzalez. That's an example of what you're saying. Like that, Chappelle could easily go play at um, the Bradley Center and mm-hmm. in one night, but he chose the Riverside for a reason. Well, yeah, he was work. I think he was working out a lot of new material, and he was trying to like. He's always chosen the Riverside, though. He's done this many years in a row. Yeah, the the Riverside's like a world world renowned venue. They have like I did one show there. At, it's the green room. Like everything is absolutely insane. I love that little side door too, where you can literally like just walk out the side and you're like on the sidewalk and you can just in hop the, in a car in the back. No, when you walk off the stage, wait, am I thinking of the paps? No, Maybe. I think of the, I'm thinking of the paps where you can literally walk off the yeah, stage. I got um, go on to the street. I got handcuffed there once after an atmosphere show. What I the was, fuck? I was drunk and kicked over a garbage can for whatever reason. Wait, I, the cops kicked you over a garbage no, can? No, there was or? a cop there and she's like, pick it up. And I was like, no. And, Oh, you, you like kicked put, over the garbage can. Okay. Yeah, yeah. I got put in handcuffs, and then I actually, my dad was with me at that show. <laughs> and my best friend and a couple other homies. My dad walks out. He's like, what the fuck, Chris? What are you doing? <laughs> I picked up the garbage can, got unhandcuffed, and proceeded on my way. But I know what side door you're speaking of. Yeah. Um, where was I going with this? Yeah, I mean, all those venues are, are absolutely fucking beautiful. I've seen some amazing shows there. I was talking about this when I was out in Vegas. Uh my best friend Nick, who lives out there, we saw in excess back in like 2005. In excess? Well, when they had the new frontman. Uh, I don't even think. Is that punk band? No, in excess. 80s, like new wave. They had some. Oh, yeah. They did play throughout the 90s because I think their last album was 96 or 97, right before Michael Hutchison uh, passed away slash committed suicide. Interesting. Well, there was, there was a weird shit that kind of brewed, that was brewing around that. He got into a fight. And someone kicked him in the head or he smacked his head on the concrete and he was having like weird head issues and he wasn't, he did, he just kept saying, I don't feel right. Like I'm not singing the way I want to, like everything wasn't working out the way he wanted to. Like there might've been some CTE or some kind of concussion that was going on. Like wow. they just never knew. And they didn't know if the, the head damage they, or the brain damage they had from that shot to his head caused an issue that made him like kill himself. Um, there's weird instances throughout history where people have gotten like 
bad accidents or bad knocks on their head. Like Kanye West, when he got into that car accident, like he was just making music. And all of a sudden he came out of that. Like when you drop through the wire, like people were like, dude, this dude's a genius. Yeah, like he's guy. doing this, he's doing that. Like he just started spitting. But at the same time, there was a level of crazy to him that was going on too, where people just didn't understand where the Did fuck he was coming from. Did you see episode with Joe Rogan? Uh, I watched part of it of what i could yes because he was like i'm all over the Dude, board he was and that guy was all over the fucking board wasn't making a lot of sense and, and some issues and stuff i was like yo i i like kanye though because he's like he he takes an initiative to always doubt the fucking default situation in the world and like do his own damn thing and he doesn't get he doesn't care what people think and he does it and he usually does it pretty damn well yeah he's extremely successful at everything that he's put his mind to and he gets hated on and i think that's a byproduct of anyone who does anything worthwhile like is is polarizing like you're almost guaranteed to be a polarizing figure if you're gonna like uh, execute some sort of change that has some sort of huge impact on the world you're gonna have like some polarizing situation like martin luther king gandhi like look throughout history these these are some of the most polarizing figures throughout now in hindsight we look back and everyone largely agrees with their points of view but i wouldn't say that i wouldn't say that he pushed change i would say that he i would say that he pushed he pushed the bar to a new level where I don't think people could top it, and I think people just bit his style so hard. Dude, like I hear bite it, his style all the time. I hear it constantly in hip hop when 808s and Heartbreaks came out, and he did like that album in like partial auto tune. Yeah, and that reverb. Oh, he did that's, it at the Grammys, didn't he? Like, yeah, and then like everyone you heard after that, him. Future, Migos, the list goes on and on. Lil Wayne was. It still how bites that, that. How is that not um, an example of ex- executing change, like a ripple effect of change? Like every, I see people with Yeezys on everywhere I go now. Yeah, and and that's the thing. But he's trying to dress like him, trying to be like him, but people want to talk shit about him, and it's weird. It is weird. I it, don't understand it. Like you're honestly. rocking his shit, but you're like talking out the side of your mouth. Yeah, about I had a him. dude once asked me like I was wearing. a pair of Yeezys and he came like do you even like Kanye and I was like I love Kanye like I respect his creativity and he's done well, well I would, of course I do I would shoes out but apparently that's not so obvious you're right yeah and I just my point of view is this is that it what I don't see it as change I saw people conforming to what he was doing interesting and- that makes okay I like your point of view there at least it's not positive it, it is changing everyone to conform with what he's doing, but it's it's not the positive change that you would hope to see affected. I, I wanted to see instead of people trying to just be successful at that craft to take what is kind of cut out like cookie cutter style. I shouldn't say cookie cutter. Um, Kanye has a style and people bit the fuck out of it because of the fact they were like, oh, that's success. And what the idea was for me is is that he thought outside of the box and that he was he was amazing and ahead of his time when it came to his music production and what he was saying. And I think people negate that fact. Like a lot of people is just like I hear a lot of, of rap now and it's it's the same it's the same thing and it's just so a repeat. Almost everything is like people copy it's the easy 
it's the easiest way, um, sort of mental model that humans have is to like reflect back on what's worked before and emulate it. It you see it with apps all the time. Um, people are trying to create the next Facebook, the next Google. Like, no, if if Facebook and Google already exist, you should not be trying to copy them. You need to think about what's next. And these are inherently difficult things to wrap your brain around because they don't exist yet. And there's a challenge to it. I don't think people want to be challenged. They just want to take the easy route where you can take a look at almost technology lineage. Where did Facebook come from? Well, it's a hybrid of LiveJournal. And, and MySpace and Friendster. Yeah. Or maybe, yeah. So that's where that came from. So you keep looking at different models. Yeah, they sample what is going on in the current times, but they evolve and they become their own fucking thing. Here's another big problem with that is like people are not good at thinking from first principles. Have you ever heard this before? First principle thinking? No. It's uh, Elon Musk is a huge advocate of this. I read his um, autobiography recently and it's a recurring theme throughout, but it's to like uh, people will often be like, all right, um, I, I have a great idea, but um, somebody's probably already thought of that or is working on that, right? No, you need to like break every every idea you have down to the fundamental first principle um, underlying, like get rid of all your assumptions about what you think this this um, idea might might be about and break them down into like the scientific first principle situation and then build back up from there, if that makes sense. Would you have an example of like what you would mean as far as like building it up from the ground yeah, up? Yeah, I'm going to trying to think of a good example. Does he, does he list any examples in his book, like whether it was through Tesla or oh my through God. SpaceX? Like the, the size of the LCDs, LED screen in the Tesla was a huge problem, but he was like, it did not defy any laws of physics to put this um, unorthodox sort of screen size as the dashboard in the Tesla, but nobody made this screen. And like, he was relentless to like find somebody who would make it. Mm -hmm. um, but like, it, uh, let me find a good example for you. Okay. Now I will say this, the, the screen in the Tesla. if you haven't been in a Tesla yet, like that screen is ginormous. Although I would say that it's very helpful when you're trying to get around. You can put, type stuff into that map. It, the te Teslas are crazy. That's yeah. a whole nother situation. Yeah. Have you driven a Tesla? No. Um, Jeff Davison has one. And the fact that that thing can auto fucking drive just fucking blows my goddamn mind. Oh, yeah. It will be. They will be driving themselves within due time. Probably so, faster than most people think, too. With those, it's crazy. Like they've done the behind the scenes on how that operates, and it's it's amazing on what it can pick up on what is stationary. Like it knows what a stop sign is. It knows what like what a parking hydrant or a fire hydrant is. It knows where the curb is, yeah. and it can understand exactly where lanes are, and that what is a turn only lane and what is just a normal lane. And it's yeah, they fucking have crazy. So many can cameras pick on these cars, but the thing about this is like the more data that they accumulate, the more these neural networks of artificial intelligence sort of are able to build better, better AI algorithms and stuff to navigate these situations. But this process is not linear. And 
linear meaning um, one plus one plus one or whatever. It's exponential meaning one, two, four doubles, right? As more people, one more, one more person buys a Tesla, um, the amount of data that they accumulate with, combined with the stuff that they already have, the situation for Tesla and the improvement is exponential increase, like double a penny once a day, you'll have a million dollars in under a month, um, which most people like don't really, it's hard for the human mind to conceptualize that. So yeah, like I think, I think uh, the, the self-driving completely autonomous Tesla will happen way sooner than most people imagine. Oh yeah, technology. Dude, technology is moving so fast now that I don't even think a lot of us can really keep up. Um, Ray, oh, it's Ray not, Kurzweil. Uh, that's who it was, Ray Kurzweil. Singularity is in here, yeah. Nice, nice, I didn't know you read him. Um, he talks about how um, technology speed will double like every 12 months, but as that's you go Moore's on. Law. But, but as you go on, it gets shorter and shorter. Like at one point, yeah. it was every 48 months, and then it became every 36 months, then it became every 12 months, where it's to the point where technology is moving so fast now that we as we as people that are building it have can't a, keep up. have a hard time conceptualizing, too. I think it's he says it's not just that the rate of change is accelerating. It's that the, the, cha- the rate is also accelerating. Yeah. Um, so like Moore's law is, I think it's, yeah, Moore's law is, um, the idea or the phenomenon that computer processing power doubles every 18 months and the size of the computer cuts in half. Yeah. So like, a, a five megabyte hard drive in the 1950s costs, like, I think it was a hundred thousand dollars or something. No, it was more than that. I gotta look this up. Oh, here's a better example. In 1999, I think a 100 megabyte SD card was $100. And f- a couple years later, a f- the gigabyte version was $100. Mm-hmm. So the, the, rate of incre- the rate of progress is difficult for the human mind to comprehend because oh, yeah. of these doublings. It just keeps speeding up. Um, we had talked a little bit about this off air. Um, and your huge interest during lockdown of you picking up cryptocurrency. Um, more importantly, I think one of the craziest fucking notions that you dropped on me before we did this was the fact that you tried to get Mike to buy you out in cryptocurrency. Aaron, and, or yeah. excuse me, Aaron, in uh, in Bitcoin. Yeah. <laughs> Which, if you had done that now, dude, you'd be a kajillionaire. Well, no, I just took the money and bought Bitcoin with it right after that, but... Um, I'd been, I got interested in Bitcoin in like 2016. Yeah. Around 2016. Wait, you had like a friend that helped develop it, right? No. Oh, okay. Maybe I'm thinking of something else. I did have a friend who passed away. Um, she, she was, I think she was killed. If you Google Autumn Radke, she was wise beyond her years. This is like 2010 that she was telling me about Bitcoin. And you know, every time the, the first time anyone hears about Bitcoin, it's, everyone kind of has the same reaction like this like gambling money or like internet money this ponzi scheme whatever mm-hmm. and then you hear it again and like but anyway she moved to uh singapore and start was working on starting a competing cryptocurrency exchange to mount gox which is like the infamous exchange that was hacked and for seven hundred thousand bitcoin and those still have not been recovered um but she was killed they say she jumped off a building and committed suicide, but she was found in Singapore. On the, yeah, she was found on the roof, and this happened like the day 
after the Mt. Gox hack happened and like 700,000 Bitcoin went disappeared. Um, but she had told me prior to that, that, um, that she knew about some situation within the Mt. Gox organization that was a bit sketchy and like she knew some shit she wasn't supposed to know. So, so for, for everyone else that's listening, that doesn't exactly know what the story is behind Mt. Gox. Mt. Gox. Yeah. You want to explain what it is? So Mt. Gox was, um, one of the first, uh, widely used cryptocurrency exchanges. So, um, like Coinbase now Mm -hmm. basically, but it was kind of like bootstrapped and very janky. Like the dude, Mark Carpellis, who started it was, uh, is, OPSEC cybersecurity game was nothing to be desired and dude was like buying he was doing all sorts of sketchy shit in the back end to like get the bitcoin and then exchange it for money through his personal paypal account and shit so this is like a bootstrap in company in singapore that's like holding millions or hundreds of thousands of bitcoin on people's behalf and uh i think it was february 23rd 2013 or something the exchange was hacked by somebody nobody still knows who did this some people suspect it was mark carpellis himself nobody really knows it's never been proved but um those bitcoin have disappeared and they've never been recovered well they should still they should still technically be sitting in a ledger that's visible to everybody correct correct every like bitcoin never leaves the blockchain correct um so everyone can see them. I do not know if they've moved wallets since then. Uh, it'd be interesting uh, to look into, though. I th- I would imagine that what these guys did was just exfiltrate the Bitcoin and then start. Um, like if you it. robbed a bank for a hundred dollars, the first thing you would do was go to a gas station and get a bunch of twenties and then put it in other singles. Like they probably just moved it into a myriad number of wallets and after a few hops it's virtually untraceable to a point with the way i want to say it was coinbase that actually came up with the analytics to be able to backtrace yeah, all they, of the bitcoin now so we example if you were doing something um not advisable <laughs> on a different part of the web they can start backtracing all of that Bitcoin to see what the history of sure. that chain is. Well, anyone can do this on the blockchain ledger, but they, they've been developing some very high level. Some people suspect they're working with the NSA or CIA or any number of three letter agencies throughout the world to oh, do this. Coinbase, uh, Coinbase um, had flat out said that they had bought or they had sold the algorithm program to yeah, you're right, the FBI and the CIA and that the next step was they were going to try and sell it to the IRS. So that the IRS could literally get their cut of, sure. like, for example, you and I have stuff that's sitting in crypto. If the IRS wants to make that taxable, they can turn around and take a look at your ledger and go, oh, you have X amount of dollars that you've made on that. Cool. Well, they Where's can't our do cut? that until you expose your, until you exchange it for US dollars again. Once you take profits on the Bitcoin, then you, then it's taxable. Mm-hmm. But if, if you have it sitting in a wallet and it's accumulating um, profit, it's not taxable till then. But you're right; like these, um, everything is publicly viewable on the blockchain, on the internet for anyone. Like these algorithms and stuff will will get more advanced, but so will the Bitcoin protocol. Um, that's the beauty of of open source, community driven, um, network cent- network centric model like this. Is like I think only like 15% of the 
underlying code today in the Bitcoin network is from the original implementation that was launched on January 3rd, 2009, I believe. Um, it iterates throughout time. And it's another good example of um, the anti-fragile situation is like Bitcoin, the Bitcoin network as a whole has gotten to a point over the last 10 plus years where it's unbreakable. It would be literally impossible at this point to shut down the entirety of the Bitcoin network. But in 2013, you can bet that um, people were trying to do this and maybe maybe nearing success with these situations or um, like, but the more, the more people attack the network, the more resilient it became. Going back to the fragile, uh, what was it? The anti-fragile situation, yeah. Dig that. I'm, I'm definitely taking that with me after this show. Um, do you know the history behind Bitcoin and what made this get started? Yeah. Um, well, the, the, the cypherpunks in the early 90s basically were... Th this idea has been uh, something that people have been talking about in very niche corners of the Internet since the birth of the internet, since before the internet, the birth of the internet, I guess. Um, uh, this idea of decentralizing the control of money, which is for, for people who do not know what Bitcoin is or this complex idea that they keep hearing, the, the core concept or the real benefit is that it decentralizes and democratizes the control of money. Nobody owns the Bitcoin network. Nobody controls it. Everybody has access to it. Um, so like, uh, the internet democratized information by decentralizing the control of information, um, prior to the internet, if you wanted to publish your thoughts online, you would need to get a job as a journalist with the New York times or whatever, and then have them approve your, your article. And then there, there was a whole, uh, hierarchical bureaucracy of hoops you had to jump through. Um, then the internet made it possible for anyone with the click of a button to publish their thoughts in a tweet. Um, Bitcoin's doing this with money. Uh, so what was back up to the question? So do you know what kickstarted this? And was it, uh, shit, I forgot his name now. Hashiro. S Satoshi Nakamoto. Thank you, Satoshi Nakamoto. Um, yeah, so there's a multiple preliminary ideas that were tossed around david chom i believe it was uh hash cash um bit gold by nick zabo these are all papers that were being proposed on this mailing list a cypherpunk mailing list which was um, a group of hackers privacy advocates um people like julian assange from wikileaks were on this list people who believed um that the internet was approaching a time of uh a, dystopian dictatorship of surveillance basically um and that we need to protect protect our privacy through encryption like pgp mm -hmm. um so these guys were tossing around ideas for how to do this for since the early 90s um it, there's a good documentary about this only like 30 minutes long on reason reason tv i think on youtube maybe link to it in the oh yeah totally hit me up with it so so what ends up happening is this kicks off in january 3rd 2009 I, i'm to understand that what kicked off this idea was the fact that banks were too big to fail 
but were also too big to jail because of all the corrupt shit that they were doing at the time with uh, lender with with mortgage lending. What they were doing is they were betting against the people that seeking behavior. Yeah. So what they were doing was is they were literally collapsing part of our economy here in the U.S. and uh, Yutoshi Nakamoto? Satoshi Nakamoto. Satoshi. What his idea was is that instead of centralizing all of our money through the banks, that we could do this decentralized platform of money that we could use instead of running everything through the banks, that we could have a level of freedom away from them. What I was kind of leading into was, do you kind of see that over a period of time that maybe a fiat currency would kind of slowly, I wouldn't say lose its value, but lose its value in our society and move Um, towards more of a crypto, I shouldn't say utopia, but a crypto society where, where our value of money I wouldn't say it fluctuates because of the fact I, for me, I kind of think of it with the way the amount of money I've been making in cryptocurrency lately is not necessarily because of the fact that its value is going up, but I'm curious. Let's to... start with that point. Okay. I think there's an important point to make there because a lot of people look at Bitcoin um, as like a stock or like something that they're buying and selling and making money on. Bitcoin is a currency. Um, it does not have a price, it has an exchange rate, right? Like a commodity has a price, a banana has a price. Bitcoin has an exchange rate. It is money just like the US dollar, the yen, or the euro. Um, the reason why its value is going up, well, one, it's it's a new technology um, and there's kind of a network effect of new users onboarding. But how does Bitcoin, um, how does the price of Bitcoin at any given time happen? This is a question that comes up a lot. So like you refresh your phone every second as a new price. Where's this price coming from? Um, it's the same uh, sort of system that determines the price of the US dollar. Um, it pulls uh, a rolling weighted average from all of these different exchanges around the world. And then it averages them um, in real time. 24 7 365 to give you the exchange rate of bitcoin but um and when i say rolling weighted average that means like if a user buys one bitcoin on coinbase someone else buys a hundred bitcoin on uh bitrix or binance or whatever the um binance transaction is a hundred times weighted a hundred times more than the coinbase transaction if that makes sense mm-hmm. um so this is how like the real-time price of bitcoin or the exchange rate, I should say, is determined. Um, but another f- reason why, uh, back to your point about the value of your Bitcoin keeps going up, it's a it's a deflationary asset. Um, what exactly does that mean? So that means that uh, rather than printing more money, which the U.S. dollar um, historically the inflation rate has been about two percent every year. It's going to be a lot more this year, I think, just because they've been printing more money. But like if you and I go in your basement and start printing U.S. dollars, fake ones, we go to jail. Why? Well, because everyone else recognizes that the value of their U.S. dollar is now a little bit less because you've added fake ones to the market. Mm-hmm. But the U.S., the Federal Reserve does this and they do it gradually over time. And the dollar in your pocket becomes a little bit less valuable. Like a cheeseburger from McDonald's 50 years ago 
was definitely not the same price it is today. Mm -hmm. um, Bitcoin works the opposite way, basically. It's deflationary. So the amount of new Bitcoin that is minted um, every X period of time cuts in half gradually. So from, let's say from one year to the next, let's say they're printing out, or I, I shouldn't say printing out, let's say every month for a year, 50 Bitcoin can be mined. Minted. 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 And then the, minted, yeah. then the following year, they go, okay, instead of this, instead of being 50, every month, 25 are available. And it keeps going down and down and down. Every four years is that. Every four years? Reward. Okay. Yeah. Um, so this goes back to our idea of exponentials too. Um, which is another one of another thing I've been thinking about with why the price is starting to really, really ramp up all of a sudden. Um, I think the block reward cut in half about a year ago, but you cut these block rewards in half and like, uh, I think it's PayPal is selling more Bitcoin per day than is being my, minted on the network as a whole, like PayPal alone. So like when you start cutting the supply, the demand's gonna have to compensate. The price will rise because of it. Yeah, I was gonna say. I was like, "There's a lot of so." Um, we were talking about the guy from Tesla. Uh, I'm Elon Musk. Elon Musk. That was one of his first things they did was PayPal. Yeah. And he recently and PayPal recently came out and said that they were gonna be able that you would be able to start buying Bitcoin through their network. Um, he's bought like I think it was like a hundred a hundred nine did too yeah they bought a ton of them well it wasn't him it was Tesla that bought a ton a billion of dollars worth or something yeah and put it as part of their portfolio and they were like it's yeah a good move it's a solid fucking but move. when somebody does that like so there will there will only ever be 21 million Bitcoin yeah and I think that ends 2140 something like that 2140 yeah correct somewhere around there um nobody really knows the exact time and date but it'll be around there um but how many have been minted to date? I think it's somewhere around 18 million or something. Mm -hmm. So like we have a long way to go till 2140 and a very small amount of Bitcoin left to be minted. Now, take into consideration that just as gold sinks to the bottom of the ocean and is lost forever or cash burns, Bitcoin gets lost all the time in hard drives or people forget a password to a wallet or Mt. Gox gets hacked, who knows who has those. Or the FBI seizes a website. <laughs> or that. <laughs> um, and then auctions the Bitcoin off and makes a boatload of money. Oh, fucking dude. <laughs> you know, you know how, much, how much butthurt I have from back in the day when I used to buy weed from fucking Silk Road and I had like 200 <laughs> bucks sitting on there? I'm like, I could be a fucking billionaire at this fucking point. Mm. But, um, oh, I've given, I've given Bitcoin to so many... Uh, taxi drivers and service service industry people um service industry people yeah you, um i could also probably be pretty rich but if nobody ever used bitcoin like you're helping the initial economy and the network effect happen by doing that well, that was the guy who has Bitcoin.com. They called him Bitcoin Jesus. Yeah, that's Rob, he, Roger Veer. He was giving out just fucking coins left and right just dude, to get people he, used to the idea of it. So many, so many. And he, that dude owns a shitload of who, who else? The um, dudes who own Gemini, the Facebook dudes, uh, the twins. What the hell is their name? Why oh, are you thinking of the dudes? Oh, uh, the <laughs> what the, the Ken hell? looking dolls. Yes. Yeah. Randon, do you remember their names? It was. Uh, Began with like an S. They were the dudes that were in the social network. Jesus, why am I blanking on that? 
Yeah, we oh, the three of us in this fucking room can't fucking pull it up. I'm drawing a blank. Yeah, they were the they, rowers. Winklevoss St- twins. Winklevoss, they, that's what it was. They have like a million Bitcoin in their personal wallets. So they own like one seventeenth of like the worldwide supply. Like they're not giving, they're not selling their Bitcoin. I'm not selling mine. Like most people I know aren't selling theirs. Eventually we're going to reach a threshold where I think like the price will start seeing like exponential increases. I don't think the $60,000 price level is, I don't think this is even close to where Bitcoin will be valued Pull the mic up in the you. next couple of, in the next year or whatever. I think it's crazy that you take a look at this time last year. We had a huge market crash. Bitcoin was going for about $3,500 a piece. A year ago? A year ago. Yeah, I remember. That's when I was buying a bunch more. And then all of a sudden now, we're you know we're 365 days later. We're coming up on $60,000 a this coin. This is not a new phenomenon with Bitcoin, though. And um, like in 2017, 2016, when I was really starting to get into Bitcoin, I was I started buying around like small amounts around a thousand dollars or whatever and it started um trending upwards all the way to twenty twenty thousand dollars. It was insane. Everyone was in everyone was like up in arms, like we were all stoked about this and then it cracked. I think it stayed around at its that twenty thousand yeah. dollar mark for like one day. And then just started and then just started plumbing. Diving. Um at which point this is funny because like I sold site one A at like the day after that was like at the rock bottom point. Mm-hmm. Like the the rock bottom point and then it's trended back up from there when i bought back into bitcoin with a good portion of that initial buyout payment um but this is not the first time we've seen the situation i think in like 2011 or 2013 when it crashed from like one dollar down to like three cents or something like yeah that's a huge that's a huge um devalue huge devaluation yes yeah. I'm looking I'm looking forward to other ones. Like there's other ones I'm learning about right now. Like Monero is another Monero's one. Monero is an awesome project. And it's because of the fact like the the reason why I'm looking at that so hard is because of the fact that everything I've privacy I've, coin. Exactly. And I and from what I'm to understand is the one that everyone's using to buy yes. shit right now because that is it's the untraceable. Facto currency on, on, um, and that's that's where Bitcoin was ten years ago. Where it was the one that was untraceable, it was the one that people were using to get whatever the hell they wanted well i think i think um first of all i think it's important to talk less about the day-to-day price changes and more about the fundamental value metrics that really underpin the system like why is bitcoin valuable is a question people often ask why is monero valuable um well monero is valuable because it, it enables um next level privacy solution um and privacy is important not just for doing illicit things or buying drugs on the dark net or whatever privacy is a fundamental human right that's important for everyone um and cash initially like we're in a dystopian surveillance state where like every transaction you do and through your bank could be monitored by somebody spun into an algorithm used against you um your political position. The new government doesn't like your former political position. We'll use your former donation. It's against you in some sort of way. These are these are not like paranoid, paranoid uh, possibilities. Like this is the reality, of the situation where we're currently living, and this is not how money always has worked. Back up, what, 30, 40 years ago, 
if I wanted to buy something from you, I would give you cash. Mm-hmm. You'd give me the product. I didn't need anybody in the middle to transfer the money for me. I didn't need Venmo or PayPal or some clearinghouse or the Swift network to do this for me. I would give you money. You would give me the product. It was a peer-to-peer exchange of value. Um, and it really goes back to like, what is what is money? And if you ask, I don't know, if you ask any number of people on the street, you'll get some very interesting, quite wrong answers about this this question. Um, and I think that's the first thing you start thinking about when you when you become interested in cryptocurrency and Bitcoin, especially. Um, perhaps that's a good place to segue. With the privacy, yeah. What, with the with the what is money question. Okay, so because I don't know how many people are listening right now that have no idea what Bitcoin is. I think it's an important, or that do. I think it's important. So what would you say money is then? Was your definition then? Like for the sake of conversation. I would like to hear, uh, you want to give me yours first? Well, I think money is what you use to transact, transaction for goods, whether it's, whether it's a, a level of sweat equity that you put into something or it's uh something that's something that someone puts value into what like for example there's a bunch of records under here that you know could be considered currency when i go hey you want to i don't know repaint my studio i'll give you these old records over here that's a level of it but i mean if you want to go back into the old sense of of what exactly money is it was something to protect goods it was to give goods a value uh, I think you're spot on, actually, with this answer. Um, and the the best definition or explanation that I've heard is from Andreas Antonopoulos, who's like my biggest inspiration in the crypto space. I highly recommend checking out his YouTube channel. But he basically sums up money as a, um, a language that we've we use to communicate value to one another. And money, money, he explains, actually predates writing. And how do we know this? because the first samples we have of writing are spreadsheets. Um, Some people might even argue that uh, money created a need to invent some other form of communication to exchange and communicate these these numbers to one another. Um, So, and money money is probably the oldest technology that we have as humanity. Um, It's a way to exchange value between two parties. Money in itself is not inherently valuable. The thing that we get with money is valuable. Mm-hmm. Um, I think that's the first important thing to understand. There's a lot of other nuances with technicalities of, of what makes good money. Um, portability, um, if I'm a king and I have a bunch of gold and I'm about to be bombed, like gold, blocks of gold um, are not very portable. <laughs> you might have to leave those behind. Um, fungibility, meaning, um, Meaning if I give you one Bitcoin, it's the same as anyone else's Bitcoin. They're all interchangeable. My dollar bill is the same as your dollar bill. Mm-hmm. Um, there's a lot of, there's a few other important metrics, money, but that might be beyond the scope of uh, this conversation. <laughs> um, where was I going to go with this? So what made you, I mean, how do I go back about this now? What made you take such a big interest with this going into the lockdown? Were you looking for something to educate yourself on? Was it something that you were like, this is where my huge interest is? 
you know, you, you saw it kind of swan dive right around this time last year. Was um, it something you were trying to figure out? Like, is this what, like, there's a lot of whys. I've been like absolutely freaking obsessed with Bitcoin to a point of like forgetting to eat and shit. Like <laughs> literally. Um, and I don't know if I have a good answer for that. And this is well before lockdown. Um, but I've always kind of been like a wily shapeshifter throughout my life and like gone from like being absolutely obsessed about something DJing or whatever to like stop like literally overnight buying a nightclub and not DJing again. Uh, I don't know. Um, I've always kind of shapeshifted through new interests like this and gotten gone incredibly deep into them. So enough of an interest where Northwest Mutual had asked you to be a guest speaker right before lockdown like that was supposed to happen that was the first day of lockdown yeah that, that was so they were so walk me through what was going on how this happened where you got pulled into this somehow where they were like talk to us about this educate us how did that come about so i was um let's see i was introduced to dude james shout out james wilson um he started the Bitcoin Milwaukee group, I believe, in 2014. Mm-hmm. He was doing local meetups and such. Um, him and I kind of hit it off. Uh, he's an old, old OG sort of hacker homie. We started um, talking about collaborating on a meetup and did one at site in 2017, I think. And it crushed um, his biggest meetup, I guess. I hadn't been to any of the prior ones. But he introduced me to a dude, Alec who um, had started this conference, the, the Blockchain Lab, and he was working as part of a incubator program at uh, Marquette, where students, it was like a student-ran business startup incubator, where like students could propose an idea for a new company and they would get funded based on the, uh, I don't know, the credibility and possibility of their idea succeeding. Um, one of these ideas and one of the driving pieces of the entire incubator was this blockchain conference that Alec had started. So I was introduced to Alec to help advise him on like the event side of the situation um, and happened to also be really into crypto and have a keen interest in learning more about it. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm like, I can help you on the blockchain side too. Uh, So the conference this past year was set to happen at Northwestern Mutual. Um, and I got slotted in to talk on a privacy panel for the conference. So it was kind of some overlapping overlapping areas of interest. So what were they asking you to talk about then? Uh, I can't remember the exact questions, um, but I do have them somewhere. Let me see if I can pull them up. It's a privacy-driven panel with three, other, three or four other dudes. So were they all local guys as well, or was it people that they brought in from different parts of the country? Yeah, he had a whole list of speakers from all over the country, actually. Nobody that I um, immediately recognized, mm-hmm. but people from like Microsoft and pretty big corporations. It's a pretty good set of questions, though. I was excited to talk at this conference. This was the first day. I think it was March... 13th what is it today yeah it was like a year ago yesterday Yesterday, yeah that it was canceled i don't remember i don't have the exact questions and the track line of how that that panel was going to go but it was basically on the um the privacy implications of of the of blockchain technology and like 
the future past that could could proceed from here. So was this something that that Northwest Mutual was trying to teach their guys about because they had an interest in in building around or my my (laughs) curiosity is this is that I'm trying to figure out if whether it's Bitcoin or whether it's a different cryptocurrency, if these big companies are starting to just buy this shit up and making part of their portfolios. Yeah, that's an interesting question. And I think history, again, can can kind of point us in the right direction. We saw this these same things happening with the Internet. When the Internet started coming out, um, it was cast. It was dismissed by the mainstream media and big corporations as a portal for pornographers and criminals and drug dealers and whatever else, and that will never work. Um, and corporations tried to build closed intranets. Like, literally, they tried to build their own corporate networks modeled after the Internet with zero of the interesting properties that make the Internet important. It wasn't decentralized. It wasn't borderless. It wasn't neutral. It wasn't censorship resistant. We're seeing the same thing with Bitcoin. So, like, I was very interested in seeing like what kind of crowd was going to be at this conference because I kind of expected a bunch of like suit and tie wearing ass bankers Mm -hmm. to be here that were looking to understand Bitcoin and create their own blockchain of sorts. Um, I don't know. Maybe I would maybe that hypothesis would have been proven wrong. Um, But I I think we're seeing this now, like all these corporations trying to understand this technology trying to figure out how to leverage it and they're repeating the same mistakes of the internet that, that they did with the internet what were some of the mistakes that they made with the internet initially outside of dismissing it well then trying to create their own version of it like their own intranets mm-hmm. which are basically internets that like a corporate network or something that you would log into and only be within that corporate network you know they tried to they tried to maintain the control of the network as a whole um, to remove the the interesting properties such as decentralization. Like, we don't want to have everyone be able to publish their thoughts freely on the internet. Like, this sounds like a horrible idea. We want to be able to control the situation, create create um, intranets where people have to uh, get approved to join. And, like, it's not, it's not um, open for everybody. It's not permissionless. You know, it's crazy. What you're kind of describing now is what social networks are is because of the fact that they have a level of, of they block verbiage. So I'll use this as an example. Oh, Lee, think- Lee, who I was talking about earlier, who just went back to kickboxing and Cassidy mm-hmm. and Chicago, Nick and I have a group text that we all do between uh, iMessage and Instagram. And okay. we all send each other stuff, whatever's convenient for us to send it through. A lot of times it's through text message, but sometimes it just comes up where it's on, you're on uh, Instagram. And I had sent something to him the other day where I saw on Reddit, if you go to Antifa.com, it takes you directly to the White House page. Like, really? Somebody like WH. Yeah. You, you, you should see who owns the Antifa domain. But it gets forwarded to WH.gov. And I thought it was hilarious. And I typed that <laughs> to send it to Lee and Cassidy and Nick. And, and you it, pasted it into Instagram? Pasted it into Instagram. And they censored it. They censored it, and they Fuckers, said you dude. and you could. And they go, you just can't send this. This goes back to the anti-fragile situation too. Like, why? Because like, um, you shouldn't see this information because you might get like your feelings hurt or something. Like, there's there's a level you can't protect people and put them in these closed bubbles and expect 
society to advance this way. They need to be exposed and become resilient and learn how to deal with their emotions through through this cause and effect sort of situation. So what I had to do was I had to screenshot the fact that Instagram wouldn't send it. And I sent them the the screenshot because I was like, I was like, no, because here's what I did. I go, you guys want to see something funny? I go, go, and I typed out, go to Antifa. Antifa Antifa.org. Antifa.com. And it takes you right to the White House. Let's see who owns this domain quick. Probably is. I think. Did it take um, you to it? Yeah. (laughs) Isn't that crazy? (laughs) I think that um, anyone who believes that. Google, Facebook, Instagram, any of these social platforms will be around for for the, I don't know, the next 10 years or whatever, at least in the same way that they currently exist today, is extremely short-sighted and missing some very important developments in technology right now. I don't think that everything is going to become decentralized, or at least the possibility that everything can be decentralized. There's no reason why we need Instagram in the middle to do anything like um and this is a this is something that makes the ethereum network incredibly valuable is um vitalik buter and the founder of ethereum created this uh virtual world computer of sorts um kind of akin to the internet uh, next generation internet of sorts where anyone can build and deploy a decentralized application um so the internet decentralizes the control of information um bitcoin decentralizes the control of money what else can be decentralized uber ebay insurance um music industry entirely why do we need spotify if i want to stream your music why do i need to put spotify in the middle and why does it take a month for the musician to get fees why can't um why can't they if i stream three seconds of a song why can't they get a micro payment for exactly that in real time and that's all through ethereum um yeah so like anybody can most of the icos the um, initial coin offerings, these altcoins that you see propagating, yeah. popping up every day, the vast majority of them are built on using Ethereum. So they're built on top of the Ethereum network, just as like, just as you would build a website on top of the internet, hmm. if that makes sense. So like, yeah. the Ethereum, the Ethereum is laying a foundation for this global network of decentralized participants, where anyone can lay another app on top of it just just like um somebody might distribute a new app in that apple app store except this is not owned by anybody it cannot be so ethereum just launched like a new um domain name system dot eth mm-hmm. and it does not use the traditional ican dns servers um so like these are uncensorable domains they can't be pulled down can't be like pulled offline at least that that we know of. I'm sure that somebody will figure out a way to do so. And now, for the record, for those of you that don't know what Ethereum, Ethereum is another cryptocurrency, correct? Correct. And so, it's on the top second of second most valuable cryptocurrency by market cap today. So, on top of being a cryptocurrency, it's also building its own internet on top of it. Well, anytime you need, anytime you look at like a new cryptocurrency, I think it's important to look at to look at. Um, what is what problem is this solving what's the value here why am i investing in this and the problem that ethereum is solving is one of the one of decentralization with instagrams and crap like this that these central points of control don't need to be here um so ethereum is provide uh, laying the foundation for this global computing network 
uh, where anybody will be able to build on top of it. So if you want to build um, a decentralized Dropbox, uh, you could do it using Ethereum network. So I started building and deploying some <clears throat> uh, some uh, D apps and stuff. They're called decentralized applications, D app. Mm -hmm. I tried building a few and it's relatively easy to do. Crazy. Uh, look forward to seeing this uh, podcast on Ethereum network coming to you soon. <laughs> <laughs> That's crazy, man. So, I, did, I didn't realize it got that deep. Yeah, I mean, this is how, like, this whole NFT phenomenon is happening to NFT? Um, NFT non-fungible token. Have you seen this? People Like, somebody just sold a digital people. Do you know people? No. <laughs> Have you heard this, dude? He just sold a um, digital piece of art, like a digital JPEG for $69 million. Oh, no, I know exactly. I saw this on Reddit, but I had no idea what it was. Yeah, so, like, Ethereum enabled the possibility for for people to create digitally scarce or scarce digital items basically so like this is a i think a one of one digital item that can be that ownership can be proven um in the same way that your the ownership of one of your bitcoins can be proven and nobody can duplicate it so we have digital art now digital art digital like blau just uh sold like a 13 million dollar album the ethereum Get the, the fuck out of here. Apparently, like, the biggest um, the biggest album deal ever, uh, bigger than, like, Michael Jackson's $250 million deal, which was, like, combined for a bunch of different albums. Um, but Blau did this without a record label in the middle at all. He did this artist to fan, and now he has a relationship with his fan. He doesn't need the third party. He decentralized the entire record record sale process holy shit which is super interesting so it really gets you thinking about like like are the um ethereum the ethereum network has what's called smart contracts um where like you can create like programmable contracts to do really whatever you want um so like the the first smart contract like the primordial like smart contract is like the vending machine right mm -hmm. like you put your coins in it confirms that you fulfilled your end of the bargain then it gives you your soda or whatever uh smart contract does the same sort of thing like um you send your money if you fulfill your end of the bargain and something else happens in return anything can be done like this peer-to-peer -peer without the need for like a central clearinghouse like like ebay why do we need ebay in the middle why do we need uber if i want to ride from somebody why can't i just get it directly from them why does why does uber need to sit in the middle and take a fee holy shit how insurance the insurance industry as a whole will be gone so how many people like let me ask you this is this kind of an exclusive network of people that are working on this right now or is this something no, this that's is very real this is being being this network is growing like exponentially Every day. The Ethereum now, do you own any Ethereum? No, but you're changing my mind on why I don't right now. <laughs> <laughs> See, yeah, like, I think it's important to understand, like, what what these, what, like, Monero solves, the privacy problem. Yeah. Um, Bitcoin Cash is kind of interesting because it solves uh, the uh, expensive fee problem. Um, what problem does it solve? And if it doesn't solve a problem, don't, why are you investing in it? Because some YouTuber put out a video saying this is the next Bitcoin. I don't know. Avoid those at all costs. Yeah. 
No, I dig that, man. Um, I definitely want to continue this conversation on even further. There was a couple other things I wanted to touch on. Um, let me ask you this before we close this out. In the Ethereum network right now, what, is there any apps that, I don't know, let's say you or I could use every day as an example? Currently, of- um that we that we could use or that we would like let's say for example like this you and i here there's a bunch of turntables behind me you and i do a a mixtape a co-clab and we just go hey we're gonna put this out if you want it you can pick this up on the ethereum network as opposed to putting it on mixcloud as opposed to putting it on twitch wherever you can take it you can download it from there is there something that's out there that's every day that people can use to even just try this out Yes. Um, is there a killer app that everyone that that's going to give everybody a valuable incentive and like reason to use use Ethereum? I don't think that app has deployed yet or been created yet. I think everyone's kind of iterating through all these ideas. Um, they're trying to see if I understand your question correctly. Um, as far as the music situation, like if you and I wanted to record a mix, and distribute it peer to peer to fans. Um, there is something called Filecoin Network. You're, you've used torrents, right? Yeah. So like when torrents, torrenting is very similar to how Bitcoin or Ethereum works, in the sense that like if you're seeding a torrent file, it, somebody can download it directly from your computer, right? Correct. So let me let me pause for a second here. For those of you who are listening and don't know what a torrent file is, a torrent file is the same way an mp3 would be downloaded now um or in present day in the past you had to download a file all at once where it was you have to start at the beginning and you would have to stay connected to to download all the way to the end if at any time that was interrupted you had to start back over again what torrents do is the same way that you could download an mp3 like a like a napster back in the day um you would be able to You'd be, they split it up into smaller pieces so that if any time you become disconnected, you could pick up where you left off. That's what a torrent downloading is. Yes, and and more and to add to that, the fact that they they is anybody in the world that wants to see this new album or something. So, so there could you, be millions of people around the world right now currently offering this new album up for anyone to download from their computer. So stopping a torrent is fundamentally very, very difficult because you have to stop all these individual computers around the world rather than just shutting down Instagram or someone's profile or pulling off their Twitter account or whatever. So it's decentralized. Like the the torrent network is, is another great example of how file sharing became decentralized, but there's this coin called Filecoin Mm -hmm. that is, um, doing this on the IPFS network, the Interplanetary File System Network, which is That's such a, a dope name. <laughs> which is this web3 based Ethereum network where the and we could get into all sorts of nuances with this, but um, people are basically offering up uh, storage space. You you have a bunch of hard drives in your closet that you don't use. Mm-hmm. You can offer them up to the Filecoin network. You and I can record a mix. We can use the Filecoin network and sell sell this via smart contract on Ethereum. And anybody who wants to download it 
um, can send us a micropayment in Ethereum and the um, file gets unlocked. It's hosted, it's physically sitting on all of these thousands of computers that are the Filecoin network, if this makes sense. Kind of like a torrent works. Yeah. And, but in a more uncensorable way. Um, so I think Filecoin is very interesting, real world application. Filecoin, I just started buying some Filecoin. I think that's a good investment to you for that. I am fucking ear to ear right now with the shit that I'm learning. This is fucking awesome, dude. There's a couple of things I wanted to touch on before we, we wrap this up. Cause I just realized we, uh, we've gone into two hours and our producer back there has to be up at four in the morning to, uh, <laughs> to, uh, run the news in the morning. Um, a couple of things. Um, you and I have mutual mutual friends. Uh, I'm obviously a student of, of Duke Rufus, and you are a student of his dad, Pat Rufus. Um, when did you start there? When you were a kid, like you started there when you were a kid. But like, how old were you? And then how long did you train? I think I was six or seven. I started karate. Uh-huh. My parents put me in, um, and I was there maybe seven or eight years. Second degree black belt orange i think um very very good experience i think it's one of the best things parents could do for for children not not so that they can learn how to fight but so that they can learn and and the child brain is like a sponge so that sort of like um discipline and motivational aspects of of life get embedded into their into their system of systems of thinking at a very young age. It's crazy. We were we were texting each other today, and I had said you had said something to me that was that was real, that that kind of grabbed me. And I, I remember texting you right back, and I was like, "That sounds like something Pat Rufus would say." I was like, "That that that wisdom that I think we were talking about this podcast where I was like, you know, every day or every cast, I'm just trying to get a little bit fucking better." But uh, yeah, dude, that's that's totally fucking cool. I, I totally dug that, man. I remember a couple of times we had hung out. And you were telling me the story about that you had trained under Duke's dad, and I remember you like you pulled out your black belt, and I was like, "Dude, I'm like, yeah, why don't we're you?" Yeah, in my house, right? You, is that still sitting on the shelf? I brought it here to show you, actually. Oh fuck! Well, I I was the one that tied that off, mm-hmm. and I put it on the shelf for you. God, that had to be 2014 when I was back here, somewhere around there. Was I somewhere? I, it was a couple years ago. Yeah, you were over at uh, you were over by Metro Market, that building over there, Yankee Hill. Yeah. Yeah. Shit, yeah, that would have been like at least four years ago. Yeah, dude, that was that's good times, man. Um, as far as everything else goes outside of cryptocurrency, are you looking at doing shows again, moving out of uh, the kind of dilemma that we're in right now with no live music? Yeah, I've been considering it, but not in the same respect of things that I've already done. I kind of would like to merge these two interests and, and create some sort of uh, unique, like forward-thinking crypto music hacker conference slash festival like feel like both of these uh situations have existed independently forever like you go to a su- stupid like suit and tie conference with your fucking name tag and like it's done at 6 p.m and then everyone goes to like their happy hour corner bar and like does whatever but like a festival you do the exact opposite you like sleep all day because you p- raged all night before and then you go to the festival at like 6 p.m. and rage all night again. Like you could merge these two situations together and create like a melting pot of like, I don't know, keynote, educational workshops and roundtable discussions, music industry related, like every, anything that's interesting really I would like to include. But something I've been thinking about and I think um, 
think the the market would respond well to something like that. You know, I I talked uh, a bit with uh, Pat about you, and he said that you know your whole family is kind of that way that you guys just think outside the box, and you were all great people. And he remembered you. I was talking to him uh, really at uh, his granddaughter's birthday party, and he had nothing but great things to say with you. And and I agree with him, man. You think outside the box on a regular on a regular basis. It's a great compliment. I appreciate that. And I'm looking forward to whatever whatever it is that you're doing moving forward. Um, there was one other thing I wanted to ask you about before we took off, and I don't know if, if you can talk about the topic at all uh, with the incident that happened at site with uh, your former partner, Aaron, and their security uh, possibly murdering someone out in the alley. Are you able to talk about that at all? Or? Sure. I mean, I can, I can, what I know, I guess I don't, I'm not in the loop on all of the inner workings of that situation, but I did go to site for their um, abrupt grand closing party. So you were like, so you weren't part of the ownership anymore. You were mostly no, outside I sold, consultant. I sold site completely removed myself from the company in um, mid 2019. Okay. So I had nothing, no involvement whatsoever at, at this, which was just what in December that this happened. Yeah. But you were just, just so I'm clear, you were booking shows for them, but you, no, no, no. Oh, okay. Stopped, like Aaron's also, uh, Aaron's also a valuable talent buyer in the market. And him and I worked uh, most of those, almost all of those Miramar shows on that list are, were co-promoted with him. Mm -hmm. So like he, he, um, him and I worked together on, on the entire site project from day one. Um, and a lot of credits owed to him as well. Like he brought a lot to the table with that situation. Um, when I was bought out, I was bought out by Aaron. He just continued building the site brand forward. Mm -hmm. Um, but as far as the, the incident goes, man, that, that was always like, that's the worst nightmare of any nightclub owner because it's basically a one-way ticket to being out of business because the city will almost always, throughout history at least, has pulled licenses. Anytime someone gets shot, your license pretty much is gone. Mm -hmm. um, I don't know all the uh, underlying details with the incident. I did kind of talk to Aaron about it. Um, it sounded like the media kind of skewed the situation quite a bit. Um, I don't know though. I'm not. I'm not able to speak from firsthand account on who who's to blame or what what the situation was. But I do know Aaron and the site operation, and I don't think anybody would have knowingly contributed to a harmful situation, especially one involving murder. Mm -hmm. So the media just took it and, and maybe took a different angle on reporting it in, i think in... there was something about like um some audio recording audio and video recordings right yeah and news that were reported it, where aaron said something about a shot shooting or something um he had told me that that was totally taken out of context he was like saying um last shot for you or something at the bar i don't know and i see how that could that could also yeah. have been taken out of context um i don't think aaron would whatever do any like there's no reason to do anything like Aaron's not that dude absolutely not so like I don't think the situation anyone's saying that like he he knowingly um advanced this sort of problem no I don't think so but again I'm speculating and all of the above I wasn't there yeah did like do you did you advise him afterwards at all no okay 
Yeah, I'm totally removed from the site situation. No, I mean, so I imagine because of the the fact that you guys work together for a I while. Did, I did show up and I talked to him for I don't know thirty minutes or whatever the, on the at the grand closing party. Mm-hmm. Kind of asked him what happened, and he knows the nightlife world. I don't I don't need to advise him on what to do. Yeah, I don't know what he's doing now though with the situation. Um, yeah, I wish. It's, I mean, it's very. It's literally like the worst nightmare because it it can happen at any venue, and it has happened at lots of venues before. There's only so much you can do, like so much security you can, like, implement so many metal detectors and stuff. Like, who who's to prevent some dude from pulling up outside the club afterwards? Like, you know, there's only so much you can do to prevent a situation like that from happening. Perhaps they didn't do enough that night. Perhaps it was outside of their control. Really can't say. I'm not in a position to uh, accurately reflect on that. Yeah. It's a bummer. It was, uh, like I said, man, it was a great space. And But um, to that, it, nightlife is always about change. Like um, Nightlife's always about what's next. That's one of the interesting things about that in- this industry. Is uh, It's probably the only industry that I can think of outside of like being in a Mexican drug cartel where like you go into the situation, invest a bunch of money and know that you're probably going to be fucked in five years or whatever. Like the cartels, like you, you know that your end game is jail or you're like dead. Like your nightclub end game is like in five years, you're fucking out of business because you have to like change it and reinvent the situation. But that's a, um, that's a feature, not a bug, I think. Yeah, that's a blessing, and and it can always be spun. Um, the problem is in a situation with a shooting like that is like, you need the liquor license to continue reinventing a space like that, and without it, you're quite literally fucked. That that's a bummer. You uh you put in a lot of great work when you redeveloped it from Oak into Site One A. I thought it was a beautiful space, and as someone who personally played there a bunch, it was a lot of fun to play there and you did a really great job as far as getting a crowd of people that could get down so like i said you could be playing skrillex one moment mix into frank sinatra play fallout boy go back into fetty wap and play whatever mm-hmm. and that crowd was just down for it um there is a uniqueness like that that is missing in this city and as a dj i fucking miss that um, I look forward to whatever the fuck it is that you do in the future. You are seriously, you're a good friend in this industry, and I'm I'm, I'm happy to call you my friend. Um, this has been fucking, this has been amazing. We talked for two hours about all this. Um, and two hours already? Wow. Yeah, dude, we hit nine o'clock, man. <laughs> it's ten after. Um, but man, this this has been great. Uh, I hope you enjoyed the scotch. I hope you enjoyed everything. Um, very much appreciate my first podcast experience. <laughs> Hells yeah, man. Uh, I just wanted to do a quick reminder for you guys. Uh, if the UFC 260 fights are 13 days away, if you're making your plans to see them, uh, come out to Brothers. I'll be hosting them again. Um, if you're trying to watch them in the private room with us, we're just going to leave that up to uh, just Rufus Sport people only. And uh, a couple of people that are also uh, training out their gyms uh, as well. Um, if you'd like to join, they're going to be doing the audio again. It's going to be Stipe Miocic versus Francis Nuganu 2, which will be a fucking amazing fight that will be happening at the Apex out in Las Vegas. Uh, until next week, I'm DJ Zero Cool uh, with guest Chris Varakis. Thank you for joining, and that's it. Thank you very much. Have a good night. Mahalo.